Navette's really praised her cooperation and calmness and I was so proud of her. Except when we got back out into the car park to load her up into the float to go home, she stood on the ramp and refused to go in. I thought I was going to die of embarrassment. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is made, the Pindurup people, to recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. I pay my respects to them and their culture and honour their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of My Horse Taught Me That, the podcast all about equine behaviour, horse-human relationships and training concepts that not only help you build an amazing relationship with your horse, but also with the other animals and people in your life too. I'm your host, Sarah Jackson from Equestrian Balance, and I'm an equine behaviour geek. I'm going to teach you how to get the behaviour that you want whilst also building the relationship that you want with your horse. Don't take it personally. You know that sinking feeling you get when you arrive at the horse paddock and your horse is hopping around on three legs? It's the worst, right? Oh, this happened to me a little while back with my mare, Eliana. She'd injured her knee and the wound was oozing clear yellow fluid. I was really worried that she'd penetrated the joint capsule in the knee and so off to the vet hospital we went. She was such a good girl, cooperator with all manner of pokings and proddings and scans, x-rays and ultrasounds. We were lucky. The fluid was from a tendon sheath, not from the joint capsule. So she was cleaned up, bandaged up and sent home on box rest. Navette's really praised her cooperation and calmness and I was so proud of her. Except when we got back out into the car park to load her up into the float to go home, she stood on the ramp and refused to go in. I thought I was going to die of embarrassment. She'd just been so great. Like why on earth was she doing this now? You know, the hard part was over. We could just go home if she just get on the float already. The vet kindly offered to help and he and my partner literally pushed Eliana into the float whilst I rewarded every step. And, you know, as methods went, it was pretty safe and low fuss, but it was clear that she would rather not have gone into that float. Why? Well, if we look at it from Eliana's point of view, last time she got in the float, which was on the way to the vet, she was taken to the vet hospital and had to endure all manner of pokes and prods and needles and oral medication. You know, while she'd cooperated with it at the time, you know, it was clear that it was not something that she wanted to repeat. So why would she get back in the float? You know, she just learnt that getting on the float leads to pokes and prods and pain. And that's the thing. The behaviour made sense to her. Even if from my perspective, it was totally embarrassing. Why was I embarrassed? 
because I'd taken on board the belief that her behavior was a reflection of me, of my training, of how well I had prepared her for things like this. That if I was a good horse trainer, then my horses would be hoof perfect all of the time, which is just not realistic, you know, and it's such a toxic belief which in my experience is really pervasive in the horse industry. And it can be a really dangerous belief from our horse's perspective because if we're taking on board their behaviour as our own and seeing it as a reflection on our training or us personally, then when they quote-unquote misbehave or they do things that we don't like, it can be very tempting to try and make them do the thing that we want them to do, to force them into it. And that is not only really unsafe for our horse and potentially for us, but it's also really likely to be damaging for our relationship with our horse. And it can be really hard not to fall into the trap of kind of taking on this belief. But in truth, When I think about the kind of trainer that I want to be, I want to be a skilled trainer for sure, but I also want to be a compassionate trainer, a trainer who not only allows my horses to have opinions, but who takes those opinions into account. And a big part of doing that is to recognize each horse as an individual, to understand that they have feelings and opinions that's going to drive their behavior and to see that behavior as communication. Eliana wasn't trying to embarrass me by not getting on the float. She was trying to communicate with me. So, you know, the challenge then is when they do do frustrating, embarrassing things like stop on the ramp of the horse float at the vet hospital, can we, instead of making it all about us and feeling embarrassed, can we put the horse's behavior back on the horse and get curious? Oh, no wonder why she's doing that. What opinion is she trying to share with me? Now, it might not change the outcome. We still do need to travel home from the vet hospital after all. But what it does change is our emotional state and our response. So, you know, if I'm curious about the behavior, I'm much more likely to ask myself, how can I help my horse get on the float? Whereas if I'm frustrated and embarrassed, I'm much more likely to get cross with her and try and make her get on the jolly float. Which, and I say this from past experience, can go pear-shaped very quickly and really damage your relationship with your horse. So taking on responsibility for our horse's behavior as if we could control it, as if we should be able to control it, really doesn't serve us or our horse. And it's, it's a false belief really because the only one who is in control of the horse's behavior is the horse. And this is really important, so I'm going to say it again. The only one who is in control of the horse's behavior is the horse. So trying to control a horse's behavior not only kind of sets us up to constantly fail and to experience the emotional turmoil and, you know, negative mental health outcomes associated with that, but it sets us up to get frustrated and possibly angry with our horse or ourselves or both, which is so likely to damage our relationship with our horse. 
And on top of that, if we're constantly kind of micromanaging our horses in an attempt to control their behavior, it doesn't give them the freedom to express themselves fully or the opportunity to really show us that they do know what we want them to do and to cooperate with us of their own accord. And, you know, in all honesty, there is such a freedom and a relief in letting go of that need to control, that need to be responsible for everything our horse or our child, for that matter, does. They are their own person. They are whole in and of themselves and can think and move and control their own bodies. They are responsible for their behavior, not us. Sure, you know, their previous experience with us is going to inform their behavior to a certain extent. But when it comes down to it, their behavior is on them, not us. We can try and guide and influence and support, but we can't be them. That is for them to do which is so cool because now when, you know, our child has a meltdown in the grocery store or our horse won't load into the float to go home after taking them somewhere, we don't take it personally. Our feelings of self-worth as a parent or a trainer are not at stake anymore because we can recognize that this behavior is a reflection of how they're feeling right now. And in that moment, our job is just to help them. But, you know, I get it. We really would like to be able to direct their behavior to some degree. So if we can't control their behavior, then all we can really do is try and influence their behavior. You know, we can cue them to do behaviors that we've already trained. And we can set up the training environment and use positive or negative reinforcement to train new behaviors. After listening to last week's podcast, hopefully we won't be using too much punishment to stop unwanted behaviours, but we might want to work to change unwanted behaviours by managing the environment or training an incompatible behaviour. But at the end of the day, we can orchestrate things as much as we like, but it's the horse who physically moves their body to do the behaviour. They are in charge of that bit, not us. And it's the same with toddlers co-workers, your spouse and your dog. So what I want to talk about a little bit in this episode is the factors that drive behavior and which of those things we can influence and which of those things that we can't. So firstly, behavior doesn't just occur on a whim. You know, whether we're talking about ourselves, our children, our co-workers or our horses, it's always a product of that individual's particular biology their learning history, and the environment. It's a combination of those factors that drives behavior. So let's look at those aspects now in detail. Firstly, biology. Have you ever felt hangry, that awful cranky feeling when you're hungry and suddenly you have like zero patience? Yep, it's pretty horrible. So factors like being hungry, tired, sick, or in pain are really going to influence behavior. I know when I broke my foot last year and I was in a bit of pain, but also I just couldn't do much of anything at all. I was so restricted and that was incredibly frustrating. So yeah, I was pretty grumpy to be around for a little while there. It's the same for animals. 
if they are in pain, they're more likely to behave aggressively. I recall trying to massage a mare that was cycling a few years back. You know, and I started off with her head and her neck and her chest and she was fine. In fact, I think she rather enjoyed some aspects of it. But as soon as I got to her withers, any further back from that, she was having none of it. And, you know, she rapidly escalated to kicking out and saying no in no uncertain terms. So those elements are what we would call our physiological state, you know, the state that our body is in at that time. And perhaps we can influence some of them to some degree by, you know, making sure our horse has access to food so they're not hungry, that they've got companions and a suitable environment to sleep in so that, you know, they're not tired, that they have pain relief or veterinary treatment when needed. So as much as possible, they're not experiencing pain. But, you know, we're not going to be able to influence all of those things all of the time. Biology also includes developmental state, which is probably more relevant to humans than horses because obviously our brains take much longer to develop. A toddler, for example, doesn't yet have the brain development to learn to read. You know, the part of the brain that's really good at learning kind of rule-based things like literacy and math develops later, on average around eight years old. So it would really be frustrating exercise for both of us if I decided to try and teach my toddler to read. You know, he's just not capable of that yet. Biology also refers to genetics. So the biological makeup of an individual is going to influence their behavior. I'm never going to be able to teach my horse to sing, for example, because those kind of vocalizations aren't in the natural repertoire of behavior for a horse. He isn't biologically capable of singing. That's never going to happen. Genetics can also be responsible for variation in the likelihood of behavior that is natural for a horse. So for example, horse breed might impact how quickly a horse will escalate to a flight response when presented with a frightening stimulus. My thoroughbred Saxon is much more kind of reactive, if I'm going to put a label on it, and prone to flight than my Andalusian mares. You know, the other day I was climbing through a plain wire fence and I'm a bit clumsy and I caught my foot and it, the wire just kind of twanged. And at the time, all the horses were standing close by eating hay really calmly, but Saxon spooked at the twanging and quickly, you know, kind of leapt a few horse lengths away. Whereas, you know, my two mares, I don't even think they paused in munching their hay. So it's probably not just genetics that's responsible for that response that he had we're always going to get a combination of all of the factors, biology, learning, history and environment. But I think genetics was certainly probably a major factor in that particular response. Now, obviously, there's nothing we can do to change our horse's genetics. That ship has well and truly sailed. But it's important to be aware that genetics will influence behaviour. The second factor that I want to talk about is learning history. Now, I find this one fascinating. Essentially, all the experience that a horse has had in the past and the things that they've learned previously will inform their current behavior. Now, <laughs> I recall at my previous property being really perplexed as how this temporary electric fence that I'd set up to kind of keep my horses out of this really muddy area just kept falling over. Until one day I witnessed my then yearling filly Evita 
grab one of the plastic tread ends in her mouth, pull it out of the ground and drop it and then lead the herd over the now grounded tape to the tasty grass on the other side of the muddy patch. Now, I don't think I would have believed it without witnessing that with my own eyes, but there's no way that she just woke up one day and decided to see what happened if she pulled on the step in with her mouth. So what did happen? Well, thinking back, I recall a few months before witnessing this particular behavior that branches had fallen down on the fence, downing it and letting the horses through on a number of occasions. So Evita had learned that A, there was tasty grass on the other side, and B, that she could step over the fence without getting zapped once it was downed. So these learnings became part of her learning history. Now, the other thing that I think is probably relevant here is that Evita was really young, barely a yearling. So she didn't have the length of life experience with electric fencing that the other horses had. And so perhaps this lack of kind of unpleasant experience getting zapped, the absence of that particular learning history made her more likely to play with the fence. Or perhaps it was just that she was a curious, bored youngster who liked to chew on things. But I can only guess that playful chewing on the plastic tread ends accidentally led to one coming out of the ground and downing the tape enough for her to recognize that the tape was down and recall her previous learnings and step over the tape to get to the grass. At which point she learned that C, she could manipulate the tread in to down the fence and get to the grass. So what I'm wanting to share with this story is that Avita's learning history influenced the development of this Houdini-like behavior. Now, obviously, everything you've learned in your whole entire life is a lot of stuff, right? So if we're going to generalize, the learning history that's most likely to influence our or our horse's current behavior is more recent, associated with strong emotions, or associated with a particular environment. Let's look at those in a bit more detail. So more recent behavior. So generally speaking, more recent learnings have more of an impact on current behavior. So for example, if I spend 10 minutes working on training my horse to back up, and then I stuff up and give a cue that's a bit ambiguous, my horse doesn't probably recognize that cue, my horse is more likely to offer that most recently rewarded behavior of backing up in the hope that that is maybe what I wanted. Now, secondly, associated with strong emotions. So these emotions could be pleasurable, like Avita getting the grass, or unpleasant, such as fear or pain. So for example, I move really fast to get out of somewhere when I hear or see a wasp. I do not hang around. Now, I think I last got stung when I was about seven years old by a wasp, but it was so unpleasant that it still influences my behavior to this day. A horse might try and avoid being caught if they know that the vet has arrived or if they can see that the horse float is attached to the vehicle. If their previous experiences, their learning history has taught them to associate those particular situations with unpleasant things. Thirdly, behavior associated with particular environments. 
So this is where behavior is particularly relevant when it is in a specific environment. For example, since having my son, I have really cleaned up my language. I used to be a total swear bear, but something I've recently realized is that for me, that bad language was really closely associated with working in a mining environment. So cleaning up my language now that I'm not working in that environment was actually really easy. But if I start talking about that work or telling a story about stuff that happened in that environment, that bad language just kind of pops right out again. And so for me, the behavior of swearing, and I was really bad, I do apologize to anybody that I used to work with, is really closely linked to working in that mining environment. And our horses can do the same thing. If we routinely take our horse into the round pen, for example, and get them to run around for a bit before riding them, then we may find that after a while, once we stick them in the round pen, the horse just starts trotting around before we've even cued that behavior because the environment and their learning history in that environment has cued the behavior already. So in terms of being able to influence learning history, the key here is in the name. It's history. So again, there's nothing we can do to change that history, but it's just really important to know that it's going to be having an impact, however small, at all times. And also that whenever we're with our horse, we are creating their future learning history. So everything we do with them today will influence their behavior in the future. That's kind of how training works. The training that we do today influences their responses to our cues tomorrow. I'll give you another example. Maybe five years ago or so, I had my horses adjusted on a property where they could run as part of a really big herd. So there was maybe 20 horses in the herd and they were rotating through a series of probably 20 acre paddocks. Now, the way the property was set up from most of those paddocks, they could see me arrive and set up their food and, their tra- and the training stuff. And so they'd see that happening and they'd wander over to come and get their dinner and do some training. But there was one particular paddock that was completely out of sight of that area. So to access that paddock, there was a track of approximately 100 metres long that that all the horses had access to as kind of part of that paddock. And that track led from the paddock where they were down to the small holding paddocks, which is where I take them to give them their hard feed and separate them from the herd. Now, I got pretty fed up pretty fast of walking 100 meters down that track and then searching for my horses in a 20 acre paddock walking all the way back navigating the muddy track with one horse on the lead the other two horses free and roaming around plus however many of the herd kind of decided to come with us and so I decided to teach my horses a recall to create a learning history for them that would make it highly likely that they would choose to come when I called and walk down this muddy track by themselves while I waited at the gate. So I already had the beginnings of that learning history. They already knew that when I arrived, there would be hard feed for them and a training session with tasty snacks in the small paddocks at the end of the laneway. So they already had that pleasurable association with that location. And with me arriving, what I needed was to teach them to come up to the gate on their own. 
So I started by doing kind of what I was doing already, but instead of walking up to them to catch them, I stopped about five meters away and called them to me. And then I gave them a treat for coming, caught one of them and proceeded as before. And then I called them from 10 meters away and then 20 meters away, building on that learning history that coming to me meant getting a slice of carrot. Now, when I got to about kind of halfway down that paddock, I realized that they couldn't necessarily hear me when I called them. So I had to go kind of closer again and introduce a whistle. And before I knew it, I could stand at the corner of the paddock, kind of at the end of the muddy track um, where the paddock started and blow that whistle and they would come running. And by now I didn't even need to catch one of them. They just walk with me down the muddy track and into the small paddock. And eventually I shaped the behavior to the point where I could just stand at the gate, blow the whistle, and they would leave the herd and the spring grass and come running at full gallop across the paddock, down the track, and into the small holding paddock. It was the best. And every time they did this behavior, they were strengthening that learning history. So the behavior of run across the paddock and down the track when you hear a whistle blast became very strong. Now, eventually the herd were rotated out of that paddock and it was maybe close to a year before they went back into it again. So I was really curious to see whether they would remember how to do that recall behavior. And I was cognizant of the fact that it had been quite a long time since they'd done this behavior. And obviously we know that more recent behaviors are more relevant to current behavior. So I started by walking down the track and I blew the whistle from the corner of the paddock so they could see me. I wasn't out of sight. So they, they kind of had that secondary cue of me standing there. Their learning history kicked in. They didn't hesitate to run over and walk back down the track with me. And from there, we very quickly transitioned to me standing at the gate and blowing the whistle for them to come running and come straight into that holding paddock. I didn't have to retrain the behavior. I just needed to kind of refresh the memory of that particular learning history. So good. So thirdly, environment. Now this is the factor that we can have the most influence over. So we can't control it all by any means, but we can definitely make changes to the environment to our advantage when it comes to influencing our horse's behavior. So what do we actually mean when we talk about environment? Well, we mean the physical location and everything in it that the horse can detect. Sights, smells, sounds, tastes, and tactile elements. The environment includes buildings, vehicles, people, us and the things that we're doing. Other horses, other animals, you know, their dogs, cats, cows, emus the weather, the training setup we have, unexpected things that we encounter. All of this is part of the horse's environment and all of it can impact behavior. So how does environment impact our horse's behavior? Well, have you ever worked really hard on perfecting something with your horse at home, perhaps a canter transition or a shoulder in, and then entered your horse into a show or a competition or even taken them out to a club day or over to a friend's house and tried to do that same canter transition only to have your horse behave as though they have no idea what you're asking them for. It can be really frustrating but it is essentially 
the impact of the environment on that behavior. They're not behaving as though they have no idea what you're asking for because they're being naughty or trying to embarrass you, even though it might feel like that. They're doing it because they actually have no idea what you're asking them for. Their learning history was specific to the home environment. They learned to do the canter transition at home. They learned to do the shoulder in at home. So in the new environment, they don't know how to do it. To the horse, the arena at home is part of the cue for that behavior. So when it's not there, they simply don't understand what you're asking them to do. Now, obviously, we can train our horses to do shoulder in and canter transitions in different locations. But that involves reteaching them the cues in a number of different locations until the behavior, what we call generalizes. So that is to say that the horse understands the key elements of the cue and that they can respond to them in different locations. But I'm getting a little bit off topic here. So another example of the environment influencing behavior is when a horse is calmly grazing in their paddock but starts frantically running around when their companion is taken out of the paddock. So that change in the environment has significantly affected the behavior of the horse. So we can make changes to the environment to help horse cope with their living situation, to help them learn what we're trying to teach them during a training session, and to manage unwanted behaviors. It's called setting the environment up for success. And I talk about this topic in detail in episode three. So if you're curious, I invite you to go back and have a listen to learn more about this topic. Different elements in the environment are going to have different relevance to each individual, whether they're a human or a horse. So different elements in the environment will affect our horse's behavior differently. Some are going to have no effect at all, and others can cue or trigger specific behaviors. A novel stimulus can often trigger a fear response in horses. So the first time they see a tractor, or the first time they see a blue tractor, or the first time they see a tractor with a rake attached, or the first time they see a pram, an umbrella, a bicycle, or a child riding a bicycle towing a wagon full of rattly stuff, which I can tell you from experience is super duper scary for a horse who's never seen or heard it before. Sometimes that cue from the environment is something we have trained. If I hold my hand out straight from my body, for example, my horses know that I'm offering or cueing a hand target and that they should come and touch their nose to my hand. Sometimes the cue is unintentional. Say when the horses see the food wagon leaving their feed shed and so they all start nickering and run to wait at the gate or their feed bowl in anticipation of the food arriving. In this situation, the sight of the food wagon is the cue for the waiting to be fed behavior of nickering and standing by their food bowl. When our hoof trimmer was here to trim our horse's hooves last week, as she moved around their bodies to stand beside each leg, my mares would typically offer that leg for her because her position was already cueing the behavior of lifting the leg without her needing to touch them to ask for the leg. So these are elements in the environment that act as cues or triggers for behavior. And once we notice them, we can start to use them to trigger behaviors that we want or to avoid triggering behaviors that we don't want. Or if our horse is frightened of something, to identify what we may need to work on desensitizing our horse to. One other way that we can change the environment to influence our horse's behavior 
that I'd like to talk about is where we can make changes that change our horse's motivation. So let's just imagine now that we're in a new shopping complex that we haven't been into before. It's busy, there's lots of people, lots of different things to look at, and suddenly you need to pay. But you've never been in here before, so you've got no idea where the toilets are. So all of a sudden you're looking around for that sign, you know, that little picture with the little stick figure people that tells you where the toilets are. In all likelihood, you've already walked past a number of those signs, those cues in the environment, and not even noticed because you were not motivated to go to the toilet then. Now, however, you really need to pee, as you are highly motivated to look for, notice, and follow one of those signs. So that change, the needing to pee, totally changed your motivation to respond to a cue in the environment that perhaps had been ignored up until then. To use a horse example, back in my early 20s, I went to the UK to work for a dressage trainer for a while. Now, this trainer kept their horses in stables 24-7, which I could perhaps understand when it was really wet and muddy out. But when the weather fined up and the pastures were lovely, I asked the trainer why the horses were still kept in stables all the time. And his answer was so that they really wanted to be ridden because being ridden was their only chance to get out of the stables so they would be really happy to be ridden and they'd enjoy it because it was their only chance to get outside which is kind of heartbreaking and really a shocking response now that we know that horses need space and freedom to move around in in order to be physically, mentally and emotionally well. So I certainly don't recommend this approach. But this trainer had found that it worked to motivate his horses to want to be ridden. So how can we utilise this phenomenon in, let's say, more ethical ways? Well, one common way that's used when horses are out on a trail ride and one horse is worried about crossing an obstacle such as a stream, a bridge or a log is that horse might be encouraged to go across if the other horses go across first. So the desire to stay with the other horses increases their motivation to cross the obstacle. Now I would caveat here that if the other horses cross and then go further away, this could create too much stress for the horse left behind and not only be unethical, but actually backfire. So let's say that we're crossing a stream. So perhaps most of the horses cross the stream and then the few remaining kind of stand in the water and wait for the horse to step in and then go together with them across the stream. That would be an ethical kind of supportive, encouraging way to increase the motivation of the horse to cross the stream without creating a significant amount of stress in that horse. So essentially, we're increasing their motivation to do something by changing the value of something that they want. So to the horses locked in the stable 24-7, being outside had a really high value, so they're willing to do a lot for the opportunity to go outside. To the horse left behind by its companions, suddenly the value of being with those companions increases and then they're willing to step in the water to stay with them. So we can manipulate the environment to increase the value of something the horse desires as a way of motivating them. But sometimes we want to decrease motivation. So we can also do the opposite. We can manipulate the environment to decrease the value of something the horse desires. Now I use this regularly when I feed my horses their hard feed immediately prior to a training session with food. Now generally speaking, Horses are pretty food motivated, right? 
And so if we're not careful, training with food can become very exciting for the horse, kind of too exciting for our safety really. So it might be fun to have a, a dog bouncing around super excited to train with you for food, but when a horse behaves like that, is very uncool and very unsafe. So our goal when training horses with food is for everything to be super calm, zen, if you will, which is much easier if we can make the food a bit less exciting. So one way I can do this is to feed my horses their hard feed immediately before a training session. This kind of satiates them to a degree and means that they're much happier and more able to stay calm when there's a delay between mouthfuls during a training session. The other thing I do is I use chaff as a food reward when training because it's a lower value and therefore less motivating, which may seem a little bit counterproductive and I want to motivate them to work for me, but it's a balancing act between having enough motivation to work, but not so much that they lose the calmness. And this is what I've found works for me and my horses. So my challenge for you is to think back to a time when your horse did something frustrating or embarrassing and have a think about that situation. Remember how you felt when it was happening, angry perhaps, embarrassed. Ask yourself, why was that? What story were you telling yourself about how your horse's behaviour reflected on you? In what ways were you taking responsibility for control of your horse's behaviour? Now, keeping in mind that the only one who can actually control our horse's behaviour is our horse, how can you flip that narrative? My horse chose to behave that way because they were feeling fill in the blank. My horse chose to behave that way because they were trying to communicate that fill in the blank. Notice how it feels easier, lighter. Their behavior is a reflection of their experience. Our job is not to take on their experience as our own, but to respond to their behavior with curiosity and compassion. To summarize, I'd like to reiterate the key points we've discussed. Firstly, the only one who is in control of the horse's behavior is the horse. So taking on responsibility for our horse's behavior as if we could control it, as if we should be able to control it, really doesn't serve us or our horse and can actually damage our relationship. Secondly, there's a freedom and relief in letting go of the need to control our horse's behavior and of having that behavior reflect on us personally. Thirdly, even though we can't control our horse's behavior, we can influence it. Fourthly, some of the factors that influence our horse's behavior are biological, biological, and we have limited ability to influence this. Essentially, we can make sure our horse has constant access to food, companions and a comfortable environment to sleep in, and pain relief and medical treatment when required. Learning history. 
Now, this is history, so we can't influence it. But we need to be aware that whenever we're with our horse, we are creating their future learning history. So we can influence it in that way. Environment. This is the one that we have the most influence over. And we can use it to reduce or increase likely responses, to set our horse up for success, cue desired behaviours, and change our horse's motivation to behave in certain ways. And lastly, as always, this stuff applies to every relationship, not just the one with your horse. Wow, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for what has been episode nine of My Horse Taught Me That podcast. This podcast is actually the final episode in season one. I've really enjoyed bringing season one to you. I'm going to take a little break from the podcast so that I can focus on the Learn to Speak Horse program, but I will be back with season two. At this stage, my intention is to have season two ready for you over the Australian summer. So that'll be the 2023-2024 Australian summer. So make sure that you follow, subscribe to the podcast so that you are notified when season two is available. And if you have really enjoyed season one, please do share it with your friends. If there's someone that you think would enjoy it or find the information valuable, I would love it if you could share the podcast with them because this information is just too important to keep to ourselves. Stay well and I look forward to coming to your eardrums again soon with season two. If you're longing to build an amazing relationship with your horse and want a checklist of ideas on how to get your horse to love being with you, then I've got you covered. Head on over to www.equestrianbalance.com.au forward slash love to get your free copy. There's also a load of other free resources that you can access from my website that you might want to check out whilst you're there. Lastly, a big thank you to Music Unlimited for our groovy soundtrack.